At least 43 incidents of druggings have been linked to robberies in and outside Manhattan nightclubs. Tonight, one of the major breaks in the case, the mother who conducted her own investigation to catch her son's killers before authorities ruled his death a homicide. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Drugged, robbed, and left for dead after a night out in New York City. Authorities say this tragic series of events led to the murders of two men who partied at gay nightclubs last year, traumatizing the LGBTQIA community. Over a dozen other people also reported being targeted, and in just the past few weeks, five men were indicted in connection with the case. The final suspect was arrested in mid-April, and the group is accused of befriending their victims, plying them with dangerous drugs, and stealing thousands of dollars from their bank accounts. Authorities say the alleged crimes did not appear to specifically target gay men, but this did happen around Hell's Kitchen, a Manhattan neighborhood, with many LGBTQIA plus residents. John Umberger, a 33-year-old political consultant, was one of the victims who lost his life, and his mother, Linda Clary, is here tonight. Linda conducted her own investigation before John's death was ruled a homicide and has since started a foundation to carry on his legacy and encouraging other potential victims to come forward. Linda, thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Well, thank you, Jenna, for having me on and caring about this story. And Absolutely. Um, first, I just want to get your take. I mean, um, you know, especially as a mother, what was it like when you first heard about what happened to your son? Well, it was a series of what happened, meaning when we I was first called because John was missing and we all were trying to find him. And um, when I was called to be told that they had found him and John was dead. It, it was horrific. And it was first presented to me as if John sat on the bed and fell over and, and was tying his shoe and just died. And that seemed really odd. And then as the conversations with the detectives in the 19th precinct continued, and we kept asking, well, where's his phone? Where is his phone? Because there were certain really odd things that happened with his phone. And just like even being on Facebook and Instagram and having read text messages, even though he never responded. And the fact that he didn't have his phone on him, we quickly learned that credit cards had maxed out. And so the police initially presented to us that, oh, John must have gone out to a club, run into some bad people. They robbed him and he got some drugs and was so depressed and he came home and took them. And that just didn't measure up with how John would have handled that situation. 
So uh, it's sort of been an unraveling. And as we did our own detective work, retracing all of his steps and established certain things. And seven of us actually came to New York, met with the um, detective in the 19th precinct after having to wait two and a half hours and being put in the complaint room. Um, he had a different perspective after we lined everything out and pointed out some things, including the fact that John never got in the last cab ride that he had ordered. And so that kind of helped, gave them a different perspective. And then homicide detective was assigned to the case. And, and so it's just kind of unfolded as we have gone along. Once a homicide detective, as you were saying, was assigned to the case, um, just tell me your take on what seems like the most recent uh, developments. Well, I'm very um, thankful that these arrests have been made, the men have been arraigned, and, and they are right now um, in jail and off the streets, so they cannot hurt anyone else. And given the evidence that is in the indictment, you will see the most critical piece of evidence is a, um, and th this is very difficult to, to say, mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, there is a video recording of my son dying and, and the gentleman reporting it and um, snickering in the background. So these are, and, and all of them have prior criminal records. So I, I believe the streets of New York are much safer and people are safer with these people not being out amongst the, you know, general population. And I just am so grateful because Detective Randy Rose and the other detectives like Joe Cohen and Scott Williams, who worked with him on this case, um, have made such a difference. And Detective Rose was the one who started digging and realized after going through the evidence that the same people were responsible for Julio Ramirez's death. And mm -hmm. so that's that's been critical and, and just Rose's unwillingness to give up and to keep pushing. And, and he's a very, very good detective. Not only is he good at his job, but he is committed and he cares about victims and, and doing his job. This hasn't been determined to be a hate crime. And yet uh, and that, a, lot, a lot of that, as I understand, has to do with the language and the way uh, hate crimes determine there's a certain threshold that has to be met. And yet I do understand that this has left a lot of people, uh, particularly in the LGBTQI plus community, legitimately shook. Oh, yes. And they, they should be because they were the targets. These men specifically sought out targets in the gay community because they, they saw them as being lucrative targets and, and vulnerable and they preyed upon them. And so that to me is why it feels like a hate crime, even though it does not meet the legal definition of a hate crime, but it, it's something that everyone should be concerned about and, and work towards being more aware and careful and protective of one another. Of course, because initially the reports were that this was driven by, uh, you know, just simple greed. And that's why people were being targeted. But it does seem, um, I guess, maybe perhaps questionable that both victims were gay men and this was in and around Hell's Kitchen. Yes. And, and I'm confident there are other 
victims that have not come forward. And, and my hope is that other victims who didn't come forward for a variety of reasons will feel empowered now to come forward. And those are obviously living victims. So, you know, we have the living victims and we have the dead, the victims who died like Julio mm-hmm. and my John. It is a concern because I do believe there are more cases out there that even if they did come forward, perhaps they haven't been categorized. And this would be something I would say to NYPD. You you have a $6 billion budget. I know you are stretched, but surely, especially with the additional money that the mayor is putting forth, there should be some collaborative efforts from a data perspective to know what's going on in every precinct and to be able to track similar cases. Um, because I, this has been going on for some time in the city, it seems, based on the data that's there. Well, let me ask you this. Um, we know that, uh, unfortunately, your son is no longer with us. And the way I described him in the intro was that as a political consultant. But I know that usually what a news story describes is just such a fraction of the individual. So can you tell us a little bit about your son? Oh, yes. John... John was a larger-than-life character. I I received last week a two-page letter from his doctor, general practitioner, that really only saw him four times, but when he saw the article in the Washington Post, just wanted to write me and say, I'm so sorry for your loss, and talk about how he remembered John and how John just lit up his office when he came in and was so kind. And John... Um, was described in one article uh, in the Washington Post in a city that seeks to exclude people. John never wrote anyone off and never excluded anyone. And John had a variety of friends. I've never seen someone have so many best friends, a variety of interests. John's someone who knew a lot about a lot of things. We even discovered he was collecting these antique side uh, rules, and they kept coming in even once he had passed um, that he had ordered on eBay. He also was a gyrokinesis instructor, and, and he just genuinely took a personal interest. He believed in picking up the phone or seeing someone in person rather than sending a text. And, and do you know, he just brought joy and he could get the impossible done. And as his uh, boss said, that unfortunately it's going to take three people to replace John and his role. Out of this incredibly heartbreaking and difficult situation, you have found purpose and that's with uh, your foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. And and I am very proud to say there are 50, there is an executive board of seven, but there are 50 board members because so many of John's friends have wanted to be involved. And we are focused on carrying on John's legacy of making a difference in the lives of individuals, but specifically in five areas, uh, safety, wellness, innovation, uh, support, and scholarship. And right now, with what's going on, the focus has been safety with spreading the word. You cannot let one another go out alone. You think you're safe, but you really, there's safety in numbers. Stick together. And and don't. You may meet. We've all done it. I've done it. And I'm much older. 
But you can't just go home with somebody in a group of people that you meet in a bar that you've never met before because we live in a crazy world right now and it's just not safe. And do go back to old school of not doing the face ID on your phone. Um, but as someone said, if someone's attacking you or drugging you and then getting your phone and then realizes they can't get into it, you don't want to get to that point. So take these other safety measures. And then especially in line with this conversation, when we look at support, there are three specific areas of support in that John was a product of a crisis pregnancy for me. And I was blessed to have parents who stepped in and, and saw me through it and could help financially and otherwise. And we want to support a young woman in a crisis who wants to keep her child mm -hmm. and provide and support and stability in all areas for her to make that choice. And then support for anyone who is afraid to come out and be who they are, D doesn't have family that's going to support that. We want to support them. And we're looking to partner with other organizations to do that because that is really important to me. I'm so thankful that John was who he was. He was openly gay. And John was so talented because he was gay because mm -hmm. no straight man could have ever done what John did because he's, you know, he he just had so much going on. So it was a blessing. And I want other people to understand that about themselves. And then when we look at the people involved in John's death, who I believe uh, killed my son, the system failed them. They, they came out of the projects. They have turned to a life of crime. And we want to help from an educational perspective in providing educational programs and opportunities for people to not make the choices these other people did. So th those are significant areas. And you can find out more at jacufoundation.org. All right. Well, Linda Clary, I want to thank you so much uh, for all of the reasons you just laid out in uh, the foundation that you started and the beautiful way you are carrying on your son's legacy. So thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Well, thank you. And I would be an honor to be back anytime. So thank you for including me. Absolutely. By nearly every measure, the overdose crisis continues to worsen. In New York State, 16 people die every day of an overdose. That's one person every three hours. Just five years ago, it was one person every eight hours. Now, for the first time ever, the federal government has begun to fund and promote harm reduction as part of the ongoing efforts to combat what has become a relentlessly tragic situation. For those who have dedicated themselves to pushing back against this brutal epidemic, this change has released millions of dollars and opened up an entirely new set of response tactics. From the widespread distribution of the overdose drug, naloxone, to the expansion of needle exchange programs. Over the next year, we will be bringing you a series of stories on how New York is changing the way it does things in and around the city to save lives. Christopher Booker has our story today. The number one message that we always give is never use alone. 
That's the number one harm reduction strategy. If they hear nothing else, never use a loan because when you use a loan, there's no one there to respond in case you overdose. For a New York State employee to be speaking this freely and openly about how individuals should approach their drug use is a testament to a changing tide. But for Mary Brewster, New York's newly appointed Associate Commissioner for Harm Reduction, such a frank and honest conversation is long overdue. We know that people will always use drugs. And so if we know that people are always going to use drugs, how do we get them to use drugs as safely as possible? And recognizing that every single life has value and we should do everything we can to save that life. As part of her position, the very first of its kind in New York, Brewster will spend much of the next year visiting rehabilitation centers across the state, helping facilities like this one with their naloxone distribution, fentanyl testing, and needle exchange efforts. Today, she's meeting with Twin County Recovery Services in Hudson, New York. Making sure all of the moms have naloxone and know how to use it and have these conversations with their kids that they know are using opioids. Uh, if you're going to use, let me know so that I can be ready with naloxone in case. Born during the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic, harm reduction played a crucial role in the dramatic reduction in HIV infections amongst intravenous drug users. As HIV spread through this community, activists in some major cities launched clean needle campaigns. In San Francisco, the city's AIDS foundation even created a mascot, Bleach Man. Cleaning needles is easy. It won't hurt the rig, and it kills the AIDS virus. Here's how. While harm reduction has been used for decades, the term has never been used as part of any federal response. But for the first time, the Biden administration included the term harm reduction in last year's federal budget. The inclusion comes as research continues to point to the efficacy of the approach. Nearly 30 years of research show that users of syringe service programs, or SSPs, are five times more likely to enter drug treatment and about three times more likely to stop using drugs than those who don't use SSPs. How important was it to have the Biden administration use the term harm reduction? Huge. It was huge for the federal government to one, say the word, and then to fund it. As part of the $42.5 billion budget for the national drug control agencies, the budget earmarked millions of dollars to improve access to naloxone, build needle exchange programs, and distribute fentanyl test strips across the United States. To those still struggling, I want you to know that I see you. We need to do everything we can to really help keep people alive. Dr. Chinazo Cunningham was appointed commissioner of New York's Office of Addiction Services and Supports, or OASIS, by Governor Hochul last January. You've been in this position for about a year. Where would you say things are in New York in terms of what you hope to achieve? We are in the worst you know, overdose epidemic ever on record. In New York State, 16 people die every day of overdose. So you know, this is involving mothers, fathers, children, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors, coworkers. There's no place that this doesn't touch. And I th think that there's no family or individual that this doesn't touch. While Cunningham has been working in addiction services for decades, she says the official adoption of harm reduction strategies is substantial. There's a ton of evidence, decades of evidence across the world that shows that harm reduction efforts are really effective. And so this is also, you know, using a data-driven approach and evidence-based strategies is absolutely what we need to be doing. This is a medical condition. We need science to help guide our work. This is not about, you know, uh, mor morality and weakness or strength. It's about a medical condition. So we need to, you know, approach it in that way. 
What's a greater challenge, working with the community of users or working with the community of non-users uh, as it relates to understanding and accepting harm reduction as a policy? We all grew up hearing the same messages in this country. So doctors, lay people, and people who use drugs, right? And those messages were, you know, just say no, and it's, um, you know, this is your brain on drugs, which frankly are harmful. And so, so I think across the board, it's a little bit of unlearning um, what those earlier messages conveyed. I got this tattoo before I got the job, but I literally have a tattoo that says any positive change. It's my harm oh, reduction tattoo. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, When you look at the current landscape, how do things look to you? So in five years, we've gone in New York City from one person dies every eight hours to one person dies every three hours. And so it was really important for Biden's administration to recognize harm reduction is legitimate and to actually put money into our field. You can't help but be optimistic about that and hopeful. I have to be hopeful because if I'm not hopeful, what's it all for? Like we have to think that we can make change. On December 16th, the National Institutes of Health announced it would be launching a harm reduction research network. The $36 million network will fund nine research projects and create one coordinating center. The network will be the first of its kind in the United States. For Metro Focus, I'm Christopher Booker. While the tide may be changing in the way New York is responding to the overdose crisis, for those who have spent decades on the front lines, there is a long way between policy and the street. Christopher Booker has more on that story as part of our ongoing series. Today in Far Rockaway, Queens, Janie Simmons started with handouts at McDonald's. Okay. Her good friend, Robert Keyless, waited outside while she distributed bags filled with the overdose-reversing medication, naloxone, and fentanyl test strips. We were asked not to film inside. These are uh, fentanyl test strips. Are you familiar with those? Simmons, who is an associate research scientist at New York University, has a special arrangement with the manager here, who allows her to connect with the using community who gather in and around the restaurant for privacy. Funded through the city, Simmons started Rockaway Gets Naloxone in 2017. McDonald's is just the first stop. Next is a nearby park. Right. So if someone's overdosing, if you see someone here in the park that's overdosing. How long have you been doing this work? Pretty much three decades in if we conclude HIV prevention, because I'm primarily an HIV prevention researcher, but I started working in opioid prevention I don't know, about, about 2013, I think. So taking what you knew from your HIV AIDS work into this the world, how different is that? Uh, well, I think I started working in um, opioid overdose prevention because I began to recognize that the this, this sense that, you know, opioid uh, overdose deaths were surging, very similarly to be the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. and. We realized that a lot of people were going to die. Well, I don't take right. drugs. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't take drugs. It doesn't matter. You still may be in a situation where you're seeing someone who's in. Yeah, we yeah, see I, everybody. Harm reduction is all about treating people like human beings. Just treating someone decently, like you would anybody else, is, is a kind of intervention. Often, a, a simple engagement, um, I think, like just offering somebody a tool that can help save their life, is really effective. For Keyless, this approach was born from his own experience. He has been in recovery since 1991. Harm reduction is not a simple, a, a simple, how can I say, a, a simple thing to explain to individuals. 
they they just don't understand what it is when you're talking about harm reduction. You know what I mean? Harm reduction to them is like, oh, you want me to stop using? No, I don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. I just want you to use safer. Safer is a way of saying you're reducing your harm. Was there anything like harm reduction when you were using? No, no. Other than the than the the spiritual aspect of it, with my family taking me into a a church and let them pray over me. That was harm reduction as far as they were concerned. To get the devil out of you, right, so to speak. What was your drug of choice? Well, heroin was my drug of choice. Heroin. Though I, was, I wasn't uh, ashamed to say I used whatever drugs came my way, but if we talk about drugs of choice, it was heroin. But when you were using, fentanyl was not on the scene, was it? I don't believe it was. We never heard much of fentanyl. It was always straight up, straight up heroin. Would you want? Would you want to carry this? No. Yeah, why not? He's not okay. doing that. Oh, you want to do all that? Yeah, he does. I mean, I, I, I'll carry it no, and, and see if. But as Keyless points out, his experiences through the early days of the HIV/AIDS crisis illustrate how even with the presence of a known risk like infection or a potentially deadly overdose, it can be difficult to reach users. They started to give it a name, HIV. And how do you get HIV? Well, we're getting it mainly through injection drug use, right? And we really didn't care. We used. Today is the same situation. They don't care. They use, right? Knowing, knowing that there is a fentanyl, maybe in the mix of the product they are buying, they're still using it. So where does that leave things then? Well, we think that we have to really improve the message right and 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 a way to deliver that message with uh with enough information and enough force to make them realize the danger that's involved right now you know dangers that you didn't see back then but dangers now does the fact that new york now has an office dedicated to harm reduction does that change your work does it help your work we'll see <laughs> I don't know. This is going to be a process, but it's it sometimes it takes a really long time. And in the meantime, a lot of people die. While Simmons says she applauds the broader adoption of harm reduction, she worries that the activists, researchers and users who are instrumental in this moment risk being pushed aside as harm reduction becomes part of the political discourse. Thank you. Take care. For Metro Focus, I'm Christopher Booker. If you or someone you know needs help, please call the New York Helpline anytime at 877-8-HOPE-NY. You can also text 467-369 or visit the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports website at oasas.ny.gov. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.